Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life live stream and education offering of United uh, St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And uh, I'm Bill Curley and this is Holly Hudley. And Holly is going to tell you about our podcast. Oh, I sure am. So we have a weekly podcast in ad addition to the Sunday teachings that can be found through our website, ordinarylife.org, can be found on Apple Podcasts and streaming services. And it's called In Between. And we've had a lot of fun doing it, I think. Usually just conversations trying to figure out what are we going to talk about the next week. But sometimes we have guests. This week we'll have Jeff McDonald. Yes, I'm on. I told him that on the air I was going to ask for a raise. Yeah, I'm going to too. It <laughs> <laughs> would be interesting be to see what happens. Here. No, seriously, um, he will be a great resource to us to find out what is going on in the United Methodist Church. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm not he sure. I know a thing or two about Jesus. To be able to, you know, amplify some of this. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the women that I'm quoting, one of the theologians that I'm quoting in this class today, was one of Jeff's professors oh, when he really? was in seminary. That's so cool. I found that out. That's, that's very cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I am also so excited um, about the fact that we are this Thursday going to have the webinar with Michael Moore all the way from Australia. And I think we have over 150 now signed up yeah. for that webinar. It's free. You do need to register, though, in order to get the link to the seminar. And when you do, you'll have an email generated back to you, which you'll need to save because you'll, you'll need that link to uh, get on yeah. to the webinar. And Holly's going to talk about... Ah, so we're going to pass me the collection plate. Thanks, Bill. You didn't put anything in it. I know. I don't have anything to be right. <laughs> to offer today. <laughs> um, so we, we are um, online, obviously, and can't pass the collection plate. But um, just want to let you guys know that if you're inclined to make a donation to Ordinary Life, you can go again to our website, click on the Donate button. It takes you to another portal um, on a St. Paul's page and just write Ordinary Life in the memo if you so choose. And the, those funds go toward nonprofits in the Houston area, um, toward really good good programs and things that our, the people in our class are involved in, um, often trying to serve the poor and underserved communities and folks in the Houston area. So it's time for me to say that no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Uh, like many of you who live in the Houston area, I long for the day when we can regather and meet face-to-face -face in this place. I don't know when that's going to happen, but keep the faith. It will come soon. Hmm. Okay? So these times together in ordinary life are broadly about transformation. And I have shown a slide in the announcement slides for years here. As a matter of fact, I have consistently kept it in, which is about transformation. It shows a kitten standing in front of a mirror seeing a lion as a reflection. <laughs> and then just this week, Wayne Herbert, who sends me so many good things, sent me this one, which is a pawn standing in front of a mirror seeing itself as a king. And I think these graphics do a lot more than we can do verbally um, because uh, that's one of the reasons that um, Jesus taught in parables was because he could communicate in a picture image something that words will not convey. I think likely a lot of people don't really believe transformation is a possibility, at least not for themselves. Um, likely transformation is not a possibility for us until what we do, what all the spiritual teachers of all the living traditions have said at the beginning of their teachings, we have to turn around. We have to change our thinking. The biblical word for this is repent. And it's not just about changing what you think about. It's changing the mind that you use to think with. There is a line in the book of Philippians in the Christian collection that reads, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or as Peterson translates it, think of yourselves the way Jesus Christ thought of himself. And my question is, how, would, how might that be? 
How did Jesus think about himself? And how did he want others to think about him? And even more, how did he want others to think about what he taught and to think about themselves? Now, if you have doubts about transformation, think about this. The metamorphosis of Jesus from a humble servant of the poorest in society to a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, anti-science, government policies that further systemic racism and neglects the destitute and promotes fierce nationalism is surely the strangest transformation in human history. Where did this come from? My hunch is that when we meet on Thursday night with Michael Morewood, that that's going to be one of the questions that he raises because his work is all about getting people to imagine where the story they inherited about things like Jesus, the Bible, the afterlife, liturgy, that sort of thing came from, and then to reimagine what we have to do to have a different way of understanding these things. So it is time for us to stop telling stories and teaching matters that teach people that God's heart is closed to us and that Jesus is so unlike us that his teachings are irrelevant to us or impossible for us. Although uh, you hear what Holly and I teach is something new, I want to assure you that it isn't. It's new to most of us because we inherited an old narrative. We'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. But the mystics of the early Jesus movement saw and embraced an entirely different story. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, said, For when one considers the universe, <clears throat> can anyone be so simple-minded as not to believe that the divine is present in everything, pervading, embracing, and penetrating that? He wrote that in the mid-300s. Yeah. That's pretty precious. Before it's before uh, the, the church got a hold of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be using going forward the teachings found in what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount to help guide us through this time of uh, pandemic and this time of healing of racial injustice. And over and over, hopefully in useful ways, we'll be trying to get us to uh, to new understandings about three key matters. One is in light of cosmological evolution, where is whatever we mean when we use the word God? How does what you were taught or what you might even believe now about this reality conform to what we know now about a cosmos in which there are 300 billion? Yeah, probably more. Galaxies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in our world where we live, where is this God and how is this right. God revealed to us? Yeah, this is, I found this, or rediscovered this quote this week as we were talking about this, rereading something, and it seems to fit right here. God is the map whereby we locate our setting, the water beneath our life raft. The kind of God at work in your life determines the shape and quality of risk at the center of your existence. So it matters who you think God is by Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann has a new book mm -hmm. called Faith in the Time of Christ, a Virus. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We had a little technical difficulty, if it's okay. <laughs> That's the metamorphosis slide about Jesus changing from a humble servant of the poor to being a right-wing politician. Right. And I said that we have to change our teaching from that of uh, uh, God whose heart is closed to us. Um, I love this Gary Larson cartoon. He's so great. If it will work, uh, you go. <laughs> God at his computer. I don't know. I don't have a laser pointer anymore to to point to this, but God is about to hit the smite key. Yeah, that's right. You've said so many times, like how we see God is how we see everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And and most people, I think, have been grown up with an image of a God to fear. Yes. And this is the Gregory of Nyssa quote. And this is the Walter Brueggemann quote. 
So my, my question is, in light of cosmological, well, we keep losing our, we have technical that. difficulties, folks. Yeah, thanks. So my question is, in light of cosmological evolution, who, what, and where is God? That's one thing. And in light of cosmological evolution, who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. Jesus did not believe in a God who locked people out. So how did it come to pass that a story was developed about Jesus, that he came down from a place in heaven, which now that we have 300 billion plus galaxies, where, where is that? Right. <laughs> and that he came down for the sole purpose of opening God's heart to a previously damned human race. Where did that narrative come from? And um, as we navigate our way through these teachings called the Sermon on the Mount, one of my goals is that I really want to reintroduce you or introduce you to a Jesus before Christianity got a hold of him. Because I want us to hear Jesus asking us what he asked the people around him. Why don't you see what I see? I've come to change how you think about God and how you think about yourselves. And in light of cosmological evolution, third thing, who are we? Um, we've already said for at least two sessions now that one of the most important questions put into the mouth of Jesus in the Jesus narratives, Jesus himself never said it, but his disciples thought it was an important question to raise. So Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? <clears throat> and there's a corollary to that. Who is the you who is answering that question? Mm -hmm. um, then I think as we go along, we have to see how our answers to these questions have an opportunity to reshape our worship, our liturgy, our prayer life. Michael Morewood says, tell me how you pray and I'll tell you almost everything about your theology. Hmm. So if you pray to a God who is out there off somewhere, that says one thing about your theology if you don't. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be paying attention to um, three areas in particular that the Sermon on the Mount will give us a chance to delve into. The first is one of the principles of ordinary life that I have had the most pushback from in the 20 plus years that I've been teaching, and that is we have a moral obligation to be happy. And in one of the translations of the Beatitudes, which is the first segment of the three chapters in Matthew that get called the Sermon on the Mount, they begin with, blessed are you, and sometimes that's translated, happy are you when? Mm -hmm. So how does blessedness or happiness get tied to things like poverty and persecution and that sort of thing? So I, I think that's going to be fun to do. Mm -hmm. And since it has probably been a day or two since you have read the Beatitudes? Yeah. Well, it's been a day or two for us, but most of us can rattle off at least one or two. I just want to read them to you. Mm -hmm. This is the way Eugene Peterson translates it. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. That's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. We have a good technical crew. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most near to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find about how um, about yourselves, proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you will find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, that is your mind and heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. 
You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort <laughs> and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds, and I know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out God's flavors of this earth. I think that's one of Holly's, beginning of one of your yes. favorite passages. Yeah. I also love that idea of like when you upset people, that's, you know, this comfort is a cue to needing to investigate. And my friend Casey says, you got in their kitchen. <laughs> um, so that sort of being wrassled awake, if you will, is an, a, a good clue to kind of investigate further. You got into something. <laughs> you know, I believe that deep down, Everybody wants what the Beatitudes talk about. Mm. I think we want to live more peacefully with ourselves and others. We don't want people to suffer. Uh, we don't want our world destroyed by injustice or climate carelessness. We want our children to have good and noble values. We want to keep love alive in our marriages and families. We want to find a purpose for living that is more than our jobs and possessions, our social standing. In short, I believe that deep down, each one of us wants to live with the assurance that we're living in the heart of sacred mystery and that we can find ways to empower us to live lives that reflect this conviction. So a second arena that doing this work with the Sermon on the Mount will allow us to do is to learn stuff about the writings that we call the New Testament, more specifically, the Jesus narratives, how they got collected. This is one of my goals in religious teaching. Uh, it's one of my passions. One of the things I really have fun doing. Um, I regret that the material that is so easily and readily available from people like Marcus Borg and John Shelby Spong didn't make it into the curriculum education curriculum of most churches because we've suffered because of that. Um, the teachings that we're going to encounter in the Sermon on the Mount are not Christian teachings. They're Jewish teachings. Jesus took every one of them from his Jewish scriptures, namely the prophets, uh, the social prophets of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, I'll have more to say about that as we go along today and, and each week. So as, as as each week passes, I hope you learn something more about this figure that I am calling Jesus before Christianity. Who was this man? How did he grow? How did he develop the passion that he had for reviving his own religion? And I want to say one more thing by way of introduction. In the book that Holly and I are currently encouraging you to read, the Disciple, uh, When the Disciple Comes of Age by Derek Moot Amuraku. Close? I hope so. Hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think it's close. Um, he, just, he uses a phrase for what you'll hear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus refers over and over to a thing called the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Scholars now say the likelihood is he never uttered that phrase, um, but he did talk about a community of empowerment. That's Mokurimu's uh, phrase, a, a community that when people entered it, they felt joy and forgiveness and freedom and expansiveness. It was a community of empowerment. And so I want to say a little bit about that. Uh, Alice McKenzie, who was the professor at Perkins School of Theology that Dr. Jeff McDonald had, said that there are four marks of the kingdom of God or the community of empowerment. Kingdom of God is not something you do after you die. It's not something off out there somewhere. 
Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom of God. He talked from the kingdom of God and invited us to join him. And these, according to Dr. McKenzie, are the marks of the kingdom of God. It's not under our control. It shows up where we least expect it. It disrupts business as usual. And it's a community of forgiveness, joy, and justice. I feel like this could also be like what it is to be a parent. <laughs> Being a parent is all of these things. All it's not things. in our control. <laughs> well, when I first saw these uh, years ago, and these are in a book that um, she wrote about the parables. When I first saw these, what I thought was how absolutely unlike the values of American culture these things are. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pandemic has done all of this. Yep. I wouldn't call the pandemic king of God, but I would say it opens the door for the possibility of the practice of the principles of the kingdom of but God. But if we're inclusive of the kingdom of God, it is part of okay. the kingdom of God, right? That right. this, uh, it, it, it allows for, I don't believe in this God that causes horrible things to happen, but it allows for awakening to happen. It's allowing for space for something. So God is not out there with a smite button. No, the smite button is, it broke. <laughs> so, and that's why we are calling this time today, as we get our egos out of the way, mm. um, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> yeah. So I, I feel really lucky to do this with someone who is a Jesus scholar. I'm not a Jesus scholar. I would say I'm a Jesus student. Um, but what I can bring to this is kind of what, are, what is an interpretation or reinterpretation of what the sort of cosmology of the time of Jesus and the cosmology in which we exist today. How do we see this evolution from the way Jesus spoke to the way we, need to, we are trying to embody what Jesus spoke in this current time. So what do we mean when we say, Jesus, take the wheel? I'm hoping some of you have heard that sort of, Jesus, take the wheel kind of phrase. There's a song called Jesus, take the wheel um, by a country singer. And I associate it with kind of a resignation or helplessness. Like I, I just can't anymore. I think we've probably all had moments like that for sure in the last couple months. We've had, I know I've had moments like that. Um, so yeah, on the one hand, it's a little bit of a prayer of resignation. It's a plea for some kind of divine intervention when we just don't want to anymore. But the thing is, I don't think Jesus is going to reach in and do our life for us. What he does is provide a pretty good framework for how we can do our life in a more empowering way. I love these two um, uh, little bobbleheads. <laughs> Uh, so there's a little bit of Jesus humor, too. Um, it doesn't hurt to have a Jesus on the dashboard, for sure. Can we make our Jesus dance? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I sort of associate this with you know, these sort of tropes of having a Jesus figurine on the dashboard or the Virgin Mary on the dashboard, just kind of a hope that there's something watching over us. But I don't think Jesus taking the wheel is a shift of power from one person, ourselves, to another person, Jesus, or from one group of people to another group of people. That would result in what we would say business as usual or the same old thing. But it's an exchange of power over for power with the empowered community. If Jesus takes the wheel, he's ushering for a power exchange, a new world order of mutuality, if you will. So it's hard for those of us in society who have enjoyed privileges and power since its founding to imagine that there's anything wrong with the way things are. If the way things are works for me, after all, why can't it work for everyone? If I have a sense of belonging to this culture, why can't everyone? If I can get a low interest bank loan on a house, why can't everyone? Or if I don't have to fear being pulled over by a cop, why can't everyone? So, so often our uh, projection of, of our projection has something to do with thinking that there's something wrong with the person who doesn't fit in rather than there's something wrong with the society that doesn't fit everybody and remembering that those in power usually create the rules to keep their power this is part of part of the rub 
But this kind of rulemaking is not restorative or relational. It's authoritarian. In a sense, Jesus is rewriting the rules with the Beatitudes. He's saying, by your behavior and your commitment to justice and compassion, recreate society. He took this powerful tool of Jewish teachings and parables outside of the institution, outside of the power structure from which it usually hailed, and placed it in the hands of the average person. I think it's important to learn how to trust other people when they say to us, no, things aren't working for everyone, and they never will if we keep going in this kind of authoritarian direction. We've been operating with variations of these same rules, the same structures, for so long that to many of us, they just feel true. So even if something is unspoken, it feels true to us. They feel like the most right. The rules of white superiority, for example, are being seriously challenged right now. And I think Jesus probably would have been right alongside the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, right there in the mix. This kind of disruption is like coming home to your house and your front door has changed positions. But you keep trying to walk up to the same place that your front door was in, and it's not there. And most likely we're going to bang our head against the wall a few times. It might get messy and it might hurt but we're going to have to go through kind of a new door or relocate the door, if you will. You have something to say? Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you did. <laughs> um, anyways, I imagine Jesus would tell those of us who have benefited from social and economic privileges that we need to learn in some sense to unbelong. Again, walk through a new door. We need, in a sense, to learn to decenter ourselves as the main characters of this narrative. That's how I interpret the Beatitudes, that it's less about the individual well-being, more about the collective well-being. Unbelonging, I think, feels confusing, disorienting, and decentering. But I do think that it has the capacity to ultimately draw the circle a little wider and a little bigger. Even though white Americans do struggle individually, we have trauma, difficulty, poverty, insecurity, all of the things that make personal difficulty real. But collectively, in this society, we don't know what it's like to live where we don't belong. This is why we naively think that what applies to us should also apply to everyone. Usually it's with the caveat that anyone can belong if they play by the right rules, the ones the people in power created. If Jesus were standing here, I'm just imagining he might say something like, the right rules are never beneficial to some and not to all. The right rules are not an elite system designed to prop up the top 5%. My interpretation of the uh, Beatitudes or what Jesus was trying to do was to disrupt the way things had always been and imagine new systems of belonging. He wasn't trying to lead the people to the city on a hill surrounded by gilded gates and golden buildings, but to bring the city on the hill to the people, to make it accessible, to democratize, in a sense, um, the spiritual teachings that he, he knew. It's really ironic that we're kind of inside the walls of an institution <laughs> teaching about something that was deinstitutionalized by Jesus. And, you know, he, he did it sitting on a hill, probably playing with some grass and just you know, all these depictions of him giving the Sermon on the Mount are kind of relaxed and talking to his disciples and there's people gathered around, you know, that, of course, that's not a photograph, but that's how I imagine it, you know, kind of um, conversational, if you will. And so Richard Rohr writes, Jesus is talking about the grace and the freedom to live God's dream for the world while not rejecting the world as it is. That's a mighty tension that is not easily resolved. Remember this, there are always two worlds. The world as it operates is power. The world as it should be is love. The secret of the kingdom is how you can live in both simultaneously. The world as it is will always be built on power, ego, and success. Yet we must also keep our eyes intently on the world as it should be. What Jesus called the kingdom or reign of God. Power apart from love leads to brutality, but love that does not engage with power is mere sentimentality. I don't think of Jesus as sentimental. I think of him as fierce. And he took the world on 
in a way that said we can make it better and it in incorporated the collective imagination. But unlike what I think Rohr is doing, which is fitting Jesus's message into the canon of religion and specifically Catholicism, which is his tradition, I want to push the, the question outside of religion because I don't think what Jesus called the kingdom of God is confined only to a religious sphere. His vision was not for everyone to become Jewish and practice in a confined way, nor was it for all of us to become Christian and be saved by him. His vision was to create an empowered community. It seems like he was interested in making the whole world a place of practice. At the heart of it, a Jesus ethic has little concern with what you believe about him, but what you do with his message. I think he wanted, I read a passage, um, a writing about the Beatitudes this week that said something like, he wanted love to grow like a weed, to be pervasive and impossible to keep out of your garden. When we stay in our positions of power and we call ourselves Christians, still fixed on the idea that Jesus was for us alone, instead of realizing that we are to be for Jesus, then it's impossible to grasp his teachings if we stay committed to that way of seeing them. Several of his parables are exactly what you just said. The parable of the mustard seed, mm -hmm. which we have romanticized into this little seed that can grow up and be a big tree. Mm -hmm. um, the mustard seed was a pervasive, unwanted weed. Right. Right. <laughs> that the farmers didn't like. Yeah. And Jesus said, you can't get rid of it. A kingdom is like um, a thief that breaks in through your wall mm -hmm. at night. There's your new front door. Mm -hmm. uh, the kingdom is like um, a woman who hid leaven away mm -hmm. in unleavened bread. I mean, sneaky stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I, you know, the Bible is the only book that we have that is really written from the perspective of people on the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus is, is um, of course, he's Jewish. Of course, he's a mystic. But he is in a tradition of prophetic utterance. And the prophets, like Jesus, were those who stood within the Jewish tradition and criticized it. That's a pretty powerful thing to do. So when you say that here, it's ironic that we're in an institution and offering these teachings, mm -hmm. I think it's pretty Christ-like. It's pretty Jesus-like. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, and I, I'm not going to do this today, but sometime in the next two or three weeks as we go forward, I do want to show based on some of the Jewish material that I've read about the construction of the New Testament, how the New Testament stories themselves were shaped by these followers of Jesus going back into the synagogue, having synagogue worship. They had a liturgy. Yeah. They, went, they had a, quote, church year. And, and they adapted these teachings. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I first began reading books written by people who were members of the Jesus Seminar a long time before I actually got formally involved in the Jesus Seminar, which was in March of 2004. But I have benefited enormously from what these men and women have done. Uh, I think it's exciting. I think it's enlarging to uh, know this material. Um, I think Bruce Chilton's book on Rabbi Jesus is one of the most exciting things I've read mm -hmm. in a long time. It's very easy to read. It's very accessible. And it will blow you away about who Jesus was. It's really good. In case you don't know, the Jesus Seminar was formed by a biblical scholar, started by a biblical scholar whose name is Robert Funk. He invited biblical scholars from around the world, but mostly from the United States, English speakers for the most part. So they came from Australia and New Zealand and Canada and England um, to be part of the Jesus Seminar. It was not part of any officially church-sanctioned group, and the members of the Jesus Seminar paid their own way to attend meetings, so there was no like institutional loyalty on the part of any of these people. And they began to do their work publicly and to get publicity for the work that they were doing. And um, 
they immediately got attacked by the conservatives and the fundamentalists. Why? Because of those anxieties that I mentioned when we first started this series on the Beatitudes. People have anxieties about God. Don't mess with God. People have anxieties about Jesus. Don't mess with Jesus. And people have anxieties about the Bible. And so when somebody says, well, the Bible was constructed, blah, 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 this way and not written by the Holy Spirit, that causes some people to be upset. We've got to put this anxiety aside. Um, the fact is that ignorance of the words of the Bible, how and when they were written, written, in what language and to whom, as well as a host of other issues, has cost us so much. This uh, ignorance has cost us confusion inside the church, uh, as well as ridicule and apathy outside of the church. So I want to tell you what I think is the Achilles heel of Protestantism. The Achilles heel of Protestantism has to do with this question. What is the source of authority before the Bible? Luther said, famous cry of the Reformation, only scripture. And it was certainly what I was raised with as a Southern Baptist in Tennessee. I, I, I often joke that I was taught, not literally, but by implication, that God really didn't have anything to say to the human race until there were Southern Baptists in Tennessee in the 1800s. That's crazy. Um, the original Bible of, is out there all around us, here, mm -hmm. in here. Mm -hmm. That's the original Bible. That's what Holly's studying. Cosmology is the original scripture. Yeah. What I loved about when you said maybe bringing it into the institution is exactly Christ-like is that like it needed to go out. We need to bring, re-infuse right. that institution with love and compassion so that there's a seamlessness between the inner and the outer. And there's an ebb and yeah. flow. Right, right. Yeah. I made you lose your place. <laughs> so before Luther, nobody had a Bible. Yeah. It didn't matter because people couldn't read anyway, right. general population. But I was taught explicitly, this is a quote, that uh, we look down on the, on the other denominations and especially on Roman Catholics because they had a pope who told them what to do and what to believe. And I was, it just didn't occur to me that I was being taught that we had a pope too and that pope was a Bible. Mm -hmm. And that further and even more dangerously, anybody can interpret the Bible if they can read. Mm -hmm. and. That's like saying anybody can do surgery if they can hold a knife. It's crazy. <laughs> but I know I think there's only one thing more more dangerous than individual narcissism, and that's group narcissism. But that's the religious education I got as a child. And um, some people allow their need for certitude to override their ability to be the truth. So I want to be clear about some things as we go forward. You are very likely to hear me say numerous times in the weeks ahead, Jesus said, and the fact is, we don't know what Jesus said. Um, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. We have none of that preserved for us. Well, one, one word. Uh, his, his sayings were translated into Greek, and then Greek was translated into Latin, and then Latin was translated into a variety of other uh, languages. The first complete version of the Bible in English did not appear until the late 14th century. So what was Christian authority before then? And besides the Jesus narratives didn't get written down for at least 30 years after his death. Mm -hmm. So scholars use, <coughs> using a variety of criteria have developed the ability, the tools, the insights to say, this is what Jesus more likely said. This is something his disciples put in his mouth. This is something that Jesus could have said. This is something Jesus didn't say. And all of this uh, information is readily accessible out there. Marcus Borg's books, 
they they would have it. Um, you can Bart Ehrman's books. They would have it. Shelby Spong's books. They have it. You can look at that. Um, one of the things that makes G uh, the scholars fairly certain of some things that Jesus said is that he spoke in aphorisms that were easily remembered. He told really powerful stories that had these O. Henry-like endings on them that just startled the crowds when they heard them. Um, aphorisms offer fresh insight and are often used to overturn conventional wisdom. An aphorism would be, Oh, let the dead bury the dead. Or you, uh, the blind cannot lead the blind. So an itinerant preacher like Jesus would say these lines over and over again. So the literary context in which we're used to the sayings of Jesus is not the context or the only context in which they were spoken. We are more likely to think, if we grew up in the church, that one day... Jesus went up on a mountain and gave the Sermon on the Mount and somebody wrote it down and put it in a book. Um, they wanted to compare Jesus with Moses. Yeah. So that's why they have him go up a mountain. And the Beatitudes are intended to replace the Ten Commandments. Uh, Jesus sat when he taught which is the way rabbis taught. If you've ever wondered why we call a, a, a place that a professor teaches from in a university an endowed chair, that's where that, that comes from. Um, it, uh, Christians took the phrase over early when the Pope is said to speak authoritatively. He's said to speak ex cathedra, that is, out of the chair. And this, is, of course, is where we get the word cathedral across the plaza there to apply to our church buildings. Cathedral means the place where the bishop sits, mm. the bishop's chair. It's sort of interesting to think about, um, you know, Jesus probably used more devices like Homer, who wrote in, in Homer's Odyssey, which were references to the familiar natural world that were repeated time and time and time again throughout, the, throughout this epic poem, right? Jesus also used these mnemonic devices, um, the, the references to the world that was familiar to the people that were listening so that it could be remembered, um, referencing the mustard seed, referencing, you know, so the, bringing the natural world into his teaching so that people can put it in time and place. He talked of. about fields yeah. and farmers and right. women doing housework and all yeah. of that. So really calling on our everyday life, these visions or visuals of everyday life to, to teach something so holy. I guess another way of saying that is yeah. Jesus didn't tell church stories. No, he told stories about the world yeah, all, to about bring us humans. to a church experience. Right. right. So these are a few thoughts I've had as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. And as I sort of go through them, I'll go through a few images, uh, paintings of the Sermon on the Mount, starting from the earliest one I could find to one done as late as 2010. First, transformation starts with the imagination. Until we can reimagine a new possibility for God, remove God from what we've been taught about a stagnant God, and put in uh, dynamism, and make God not static, make Jesus' teachings not static, then no change can happen. Remember, transformation is change, and to transform, something must die in order to be reborn. I need one of your little finger things. I'm having trouble with my papers today. Second, Here. that's all right, this new world order is not about another system or structure to follow, but it's about relationship. You can go to that first one. It's about the metaxis, which is what happens between you and me, between you and everyone else, and between me and everyone else. So it requires some amount of trust and interbeing, which we spent you know, the eight weeks before this on, as the way of reality, reminding us that Jesus is a descendant of the way, not the creator of it. So as we go through these images, this is the earliest one that I could find from Fra Angelico. 
I want you to imagine which image do you sort of relate to the most? Which one attracts you? Which one could you sort of see yourself in? This is a kind of Ignatian visio divina, if you will, to look at each piece as they go along and imagine yourself both in it and on the outside of it. You could imagine yourself the artist. But setting, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Because um, I didn't do that when I first saw the slide. And I was curious about how you got them, why you picked them, and that. But I got to tell you, Judas. And I'm assuming it's Judas. There are 12 sitting around there, Mm -hmm. and one has a black halo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm assuming. That's Judas. Well, that's the first one you identify with. That's, so I went right to, <laughs> so I went right to Judas. That, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I think I chose them mostly for uh, chore- um, chronological, just how, how this has been depicted over time. And in this one, it's just Jesus with the 12 disciples, right? It's right. just, um, and that's who, to whom he is speaking. We are taught to believe that it most likely was that his 12 disciples were the nearest ones and that others kind of followed along like the Pied Piper and sort of sat around and maybe heard murmurations of what he was saying as it was passed down like the game of telephone, right? So let's set the scene. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It most likely occurred in northern Israel. With the Romans present, the Israelites were an occupied people, most of whom were enslaved or poor. Jesus is speaking to a largely illiterate crowd, so he uses repetition, simile, metaphor, and natural imagery of the local landscape, these mnemonic devices, as I was saying, to help people remember what he is saying. You can go to the next one. Most learning happened using the oral tradition at this time, and most people could not read or write. This was a credential that was often restricted to government and religious leaders. And I asked Bill this week, could Jesus read or write? And that evidently is a big debate, whether or not he could. He certainly had a deep understanding of Hebrew scriptures, but whether he could read or write them is unknown. It's speculative. Yeah. Yeah. So in this one, there's a large crowd, and you can hardly pinpoint Jesus. If I had a laser, I would point almost right to the center. You can see a single person standing with a halo around him. That's depicted as Jesus. In this one, the crowd is gathered. He's down among the people. He is speaking directly to them, not off on the top of the mount, uh, just talking to his disciples. Those thought to be present in the crowd were his disciples, Gentiles and Jews from Galilee, Gentiles from Decapolis, Jews from Jerusalem and Judea, and mixed races from beyond Jordan. This was, for the time, supposedly a very diverse crowd. It's likely that the larger crowd could not directly hear what Jesus was saying. He didn't have a microphone or a megaphone or a way of amplifying his voice the way we do today. Thus, it must have passed through the crowd in this excited or disbelieving murmur, you know, can you just imagine, like, did he really say blessed are the poor? Did he really say that about us? <laughs> you know, this, I can imagine kind of being shocked, uh, surprised, and relieved. Depends on which demographic you're in. Depends on which demographic you're in. All of the above could happen in one person's body. Right. Um, the poor had never been told that they would inherit the earth. Right. Right. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, imagine, who are you? in the crowd. Are you a disciple? Are you a Jew, uncertain of this radical teacher in front of you? Are you a Gentile, wondering what this guy is about? Are you a stranger from afar? Are you part of the power structure and threatened by this guy who's calling for the meek to inherit the earth? Remember, he is talking to poor, mostly illiterate folks. So we kind of need to be honest with ourselves. If we're, if it makes us a little squirmy that the illiterate meek, poor, may inherit the earth. Today, the meek might be the onslaught of, uh, onslaught's not the right word because that paints it as negative, the slew of immigrants that are coming and seeking asylum at our borders. It could be homeless folks. The ones at the end of their rope might be those chanting Black Lives Matter in the streets. It's okay to feel discomfort with that idea, but sink into it because as Bill said earlier, this discomfort is what Jesus kind of invites us to feel. Mm-hmm. Go there, go there, and ask yourselves what needs our attention. You can go to the next one. 
The spiritual practice is to place yourself in each position, to hear the words from each perspective, and to try to imagine how they might land, what makes you uncomfortable, what gives you energy and hope. And here's some further instruction. Well, let me pause and say a little word about, this is one of the more famous um, Sermon on the Mount paintings, but it's darkened so much over time that you can't even see where Jesus and his disciples are in the painting. They're at the, in the midst of that upper portion where the trees are. But what you can see is this brightly painted uh, woman with sheep, and uh, she's one of the ones listening. So are you her? Are you a sheep? <laughs> are you Jesus himself? The Beatitudes are a bit like the Mona Lisa. They've become a bit ubiquitous, words that on some level we have all heard. We can roll off, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That rattles off almost as easily as we can imagine Mona Lisa's sardonic smile in our minds. But I want to imagine that we're hearing these words for the first time. Again, in a context where 98% of the people are poor or enslaved, this is not actually an impossible stretch because today, 80% of the global population lives on less than $10 a day. And nearly 9% of the global population lives in abject poverty. There are somewhere between 21 and 45 million, that's a broad reach, but it's very hard to know how to count folks who are considered enslaved or indentured servants around the world today. Who are you? when you hear the Sermon on the Mount? What is your position in society? Where would you like to imagine yourself? It's okay to imagine yourself as Jesus. I think he would say we could use a few more radical revolutionaries in the world. And I don't think he wanted to work alone, which is why his message was brought out to and directed toward community and away from the establishment or the elite to throw our hearts wide open and really receive his words, I think we have to imagine ourselves from every perspective and just sort of see how it lands. In the Sermon on the Mount, I wonder if he wasn't issuing more of a call to action than a traditional sermon. I hope we'll spend more time with the verse that is my favorite, that follows the salt of the earth one. And in Eugene Peterson's reinterpretation, he says, you are here to be light, this is a 2010 rendition by David Hockney. He took the previous painting and imagined what it would look like in his sort of David Hockney bright, bright colors. Um, and I just, I love that. It's a modern, more modern take on the Sermon on the Mount. Anyways, so Eugene Peterson reinterprets this as saying, you are here to be the light, bringing out the God colors in the world. So the question to ask ourselves as we imagine ourselves in every aspect of the Sermon of the Mount is what are your God colors? And what do you mean when you say God? Jesus wanted to make this God as real as, as possible to the world, so real that he will know this God by what you do, by getting into what the late representative John Lewis called good trouble. So when you use that Ignatian spiritual practice um, about identifying with the characters in the paintings, um, I'm reminded of an experience I had with Harvey Cox at Harvard, mm -hmm. where he read the story of the feeding of the multitude. Um, <clears throat> that story appears six times in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. So that's an indication the scholars would use that there's some history behind it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, uh, Cox read the story, and then he asked the people in the class who they identified with and to raise their hand. I mean, did you identify with the disciples who got irritated with the crowd and they were tired and they wanted to send the crowd back, tell them to go home, mm -hmm. or with the crowd who was hungry, mm -hmm. or with a little boy who had five loaves and two fishes, or the other way around? Mm -hmm. And he got through all of that and commented on it. And then he said, uh, how many of you identify with Jesus? Not a hand went up. I think Jesus wanted us to identify. Absolutely. With and that was Harvey Cox's point. Yeah. He says, our religious education has failed us. Yeah. If that it does not permit us to identify with Jesus. This is the, you know, the whole way of Buddhism 
is to imagine ourselves the bodhisattva. Right. The whole way of Jesus is to imagine ourselves. And, and if, you recall, if you recall, the way I began this time today mm. was to say that we are called to have the mind of Christ in us. Right. Put this mind on. Yeah. So maybe that's the greater challenge is imagine yourself as anything in this, this Sermon on the Mount, anyone, but also imagine yourself as Jesus. Can we do this? Can we bring about this new world order, so to speak? Well, I think that's one of the things I mean by, by let Jesus take the wheel. Yeah. Who's directing my life? Mm -hmm. And who is guiding me toward the principles uh, that I want in play to create a new world? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in this time right now of this political election that we're coming up on where it seems to me that one of the things at stake is what values do we want our leaders to have and to embody? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, when I was a little boy, it was said that anybody could grow up to be president. And now that seems to be the case. Anybody is <laughs> in their way. So beginning next Sunday, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew. Uh, those verses are called the Beatitudes. And then we're going to do the rest of the sermon. Some great stories, some wonderful lines, wonderful teachings. And you'll find that there's an inner logic to the Beatitudes. More than one scholar has likened them to a ladder, or I would go back and say much like the Eightfold Path that we spent two months talking about in here. Each one kind of builds on the other. And not only do they keep company with each other, but they keep company with the broader scope of the teachings as well as the drama of Jesus' life. So we'll come back again and again and again to talk about Jesus the man because it matters if we're going to identify with this man and have the mind of this man that we try to understand him as well as possible. For centuries, people have felt free to dice up and carve out what they don't like about the message of Jesus until it's shaped like we want it. But what if we didn't do that? What if we really let Jesus take the wheel the words of the Sermon on the Mount are spoken by someone who embodied them. He got executed for it, and he calls us to follow him. Now, when he spoke these words, he was not auditioning for another appearance on the Stephen Colbert show as a stand-up philosopher or a spiritual teacher. He was not auditioning to be on Oprah so she would endorse his books or sayings. Um, we're the ones who are being auditioned here. Mm. He allows us to stick around as he tries to tease us into a new perspective that might lead to transformation. The values that we will encounter in the Sermon on the Mount are things like meekness, empathy, righteousness, peace, persecution, purity, poverty, and simplicity. And these are not values that are prized in our culture. But what if we, brought, if we brought to them our understanding of how to live in this time of pandemic, pandemic and the need for a social system in this country that is racially just? What if we brought those values instead of our fears and guardedness to them? Now, Jesus didn't just talk about these things. He lived them. It is as if Jesus is saying, this is who I am. This is what friendship with me looks like. This is what oneness with God looks at like. And I have to confess to you, another thing I like about the Sermon on the Mount is that it conforms with something that has been the hallmark of what I hope has been my teaching from the beginning of my ministry. I've wanted to offer teachings that are creed-free, non-doctrinal, full of wisdom, things that matter about shaping the religious path that we choose to walk. And I think this can be in, valuable in this increasingly multi-faith world in which we live. It, it's not historic or unrealistic to say we live in scary times. We really do live in scary times. Why is this nation so prosperous in so many ways also a place where there is so much hunger and so much hurt. 
Why are we so far from what we long for and what we are capable of? The blueprint for such a new world order is contained in the Sermon on the Mount, and I can summarize it, and we'll be expanding on this in the weeks to come. Here's the summary. We will have the social order we all truly long for when the most cursed among us, that is the poor, the meek, the hungry, and the persecuted are the most blessed. Let's let Jesus take the wheel. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week.